the New York Artist Collective podcast. This next one's about. Hello and welcome to the New York Artist Collective podcast. This next one's about. This is the podcast where we interview an artist to discuss the creative songwriting process behind one of their songs. I am your host, Stephanie Manns, singer-songwriter and one of the New York Artist Collective producers. And during lockdown, we have been taking the podcasts live on our Facebook page to find out how artists are dealing with the situation. And we've been finding ways to help, giving tips about doing online gigs, how to maintain engagement with your fans and growing your community online and generally how to keep afloat during this challenging time. Now, this episode recorded live on Facebook last week. Uh, and you can check out our Facebook page to watch this podcast live if you like. I hosted a book club. Now, first rule about book club, let's talk about book club. Our featured book was Amanda Palmer's The Art of Asking, where we explore the relationship that we have to our own art and the relationship and community that we build and grow when asking fans to support us in a fair value exchange. I invited three singer-songwriters, Erica Swindell, Megan Lee and Ben Grace to discuss the book. Um, I don't know if it's live streaming. Excellent. We're, yeah, we're live. I never know because there are so many things that, that tell me when it's live or not. Welcome to is. New York Artists Collective live podcast, uh, the first book club that we've ever hosted. And I'm really excited. Um, first rule of the book club, don't talk about book club. Um, <laughs> I know it's very dorky, but uh, it makes me happy. So anyway, I would like, like to welcome my wonderful guests. Um, my, my musician friends from actually across the United States, which is quite fun. <clears throat> so we have two of my, oh, I thought my, my, hand, my hand might go into that box. Um, to my left, we have Erica Swindell, uh, from, live from What's Brooklyn, up? New York. What's up? Uh, Concertmaster on the Eagles Hotel California tour. And also uh, my bandmate as well. You know, let's not forget. <laughs> Me and Don Henley, we're, we're like that for <laughs> It's all you. It's mm -hmm. all you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, diagonally How's down. It going? <laughs> diagonally down for we have Megan Lee. Uh, Megan, welcome. Um, so you and I, in fact, me, you, and Erica all met last year at Justin Trawick's The Nine Show in New York City. Mm. As you we did. We did. So uh, Megan, you're a singer-songwriter from DC. You've just started a new band with Eli Lev called Wild Whispers. Yeah. I think I love that name. If I was saying, as just before we started, it reminds me of Wild Stallions from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So I love it. I love it. And uh, you've also recently started to work with Michael Walker from Modern Musician, who was on the show last week. Yes. So welcome to you. And uh, down there, we have Mr. Ben Grace, all the way from San Diego, California, formerly of New York, and then previously before that, all the way from Australia. Ben, welcome. Um, you have recently released a new video called the uh, cover song of uh, Paul Simon's The Sound of Silence, which has just hit 13,000 views in two weeks, which is amazing. Um, we all know how difficult it is to you know, get our stuff out there, in fact, and ask for help and ask for people to share it. So well done to you. And you are also hosting a uh, live show on, I believe it's Thursday nights, um, a, ha a heathen happy hour uh, sort of live to video. Let's start that again. A happy hour on the heathen podcast page there's lots of h's and p's in there <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a on thursday nights right yeah that's right Where we do love alliteration so pretty Excellent. much and we have uh alliteration themes so you have to have three things kind of inside um like boy bands uh i saw the boy band there. one so it wasn't that one. There was disney dixie chicks and drag was one of them this week it's uh royalty <laughs> as in Kings, Queens, Princes, Royalty, Rihanna, and Rock and Roll. So, nice. A lot of fun. Oh, very nice. Fun. <clears throat> um, well, firstly, before we start, I'd like to ask each of you to share something. Um, what is your favorite thing from quarantine? <laughs> Erica, shall we start with you? Uh, my favorite thing from quarantine is eating everything that my lovely partner makes for dinner. <laughs> He has perfected a lot of his cooking skills, so I can't, there's no complaints about that. And we're just getting to share a meal, you know? And by the we... way, can... sorry, I was going to say congratulations mm -hmm. on your you, engagement. Sir. That's lovely news. We'll get to take a Mawid. Mawid. Oh, getting Mawid. Mawid, Mawid. 
Beautiful. Megan, what is your favorite thing? I think my favorite thing is uh, all the money I'm saving by not going anywhere. I mean, gosh, food and gas and alcohol. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. We're not, we're not doing anything. It, it really does perk up your bank account when you don't do anything, I can imagine. <laughs> ben, what is your favorite thing? I think it is our heathen happy hour. I just love that. I'm a huge extrovert, so kind of a lot of quarantine is difficult and and dull and and uh, I thankfully I'm in a, in a house full of creative people, so we kind of definitely get up to a lot of entertaining things here. A lot of great food for sure. That's a huge highlight. But uh, but just to remind every Thursday that we're not alone and that other people are also having a hard time. Uh, and we're in this together is my favorite thing, and the mm-hmm. excuse to pretty much just drink constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, liquor stores are, are running a booming business right now. Yeah. I don't know yep. what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, I, no, I no idea. Yeah. This is actually a Brooklyn beer all the way in San Diego. So, this is it really nice? Yeah. Cost me Good a for fortune, you. but still. Did it really? <laughs> is that, technically, is that an import? Is that an imported beer? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Imported across state lines. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, uh, now that we're, we've introduced ourselves, we've done our icebreakers. Um, are you are you all watch partying with your fans? Are we are we watch partying? Yeah. I believe. Wonderful. Me too. I don't know how to do this thing. Though. So let's talk about this wonderful book that we have <laughs> right here. Now, I realize it's not the newest book in the world. However, I felt it was quite um, poignant given the time that we're in. Um, it's all about you know it's called the art of asking, and it's really about how we as artists consider our art, our art, our art, our art. I'm going to edit this out. This is why I shouldn't drink when I host this podcast. Um, but it's about how we value our art and how we ask other people to value our art and that relationship that we develop in when we are trying to ask people to support us. So um, how, first of all, question for each of you. Um, how easy has it been for you to ask for that support and ask for people to come to your shows and buy your CDs, buy your t-shirts, all of that stuff? Not easy. Mm-hmm. Not for me. How do, how do you feel about it? Like, did you feel guilt about it? I mean, I'm still, I'm definitely still working through it. So um, I guess I started uh, doing the full-time music thing just last year. So I've been singing my whole life, um, but I just started like gigging last year, um, year before that. So I think it's, uh, for me, it's like kind of a struggle about, about like valuing my own work and actually what that means. Like, you know, I'm kind of, I go back and forth between like, oh, this is great. And I want to share everything with the world and yeah, it's so worth it. And then on the other side, it's like, well, who am I to be like asking people money for this? Like, Mm -hmm what is that? I, I feel, I feel like I shouldn't even have the right to do that. So. Thank you for sharing. Um, I completely hear you. I'm, you know, you're not alone on that front. What about you guys? Um, I think asking people to come to shows has always been super easy because I feel like that's not really asking a lot. I mean, I love to go to shows. I feel like that's not to me something that feels like a chore or you know, paying $10 to see somebody's live show feels like nothing in the long run, because you're also receiving the gift that they're giving you. Um, As far as funding, though, I've never, I'm really stubborn about that. Like, I've never done any kind of crowdsourcing or crowdfunding um, for any work that I've produced on my own. I've certainly been a, a part of, like, actually mostly just um theater productions early on in my career as an actor um but that was kind of what everybody did because it feels like there's this expectation for musicians that because I don't know what it is but people expect you to just have the money and the means because it was always before it was like well you just have to be good enough to get a record deal and if you're not that good then work harder but now that that's kind of shattered it's kind of like you know, you don't want to ask for the crowdsourcing thing because you're afraid it'll make, this is me. I'm not putting this on the, I, this is my kind of like inner turmoil. I, Cause I, I would be afraid that it would make the product seem cheaper than it would be if I had just mysteriously gotten the funds on my own or through another source. Um, 
I think there's a weird stigma about the crowdsourcing thing in the music industry. I don't really see that happening the same in the world of theater. So I can't really say that it goes across the board in the arts. I don't know what it is. I think it's the interference of the record label system and the history of that. So people don't understand how much money it actually takes to make an album. And not only that, to have a band, you know, play live shows and have the means to even make merchandise to sell. Um, so it's, a, it, I think it's a more complicated thing when it comes to music than people really understand. Yes. Um, I think you raised a couple of good points there in terms of people, I, I'll, I'll sort of go backwards. People not understanding how much it costs to make an album. Um, I think you may have been at one or two shows where I've explained that to people and I've said, how much do you think it costs? You know, and sort of run through if it costs 10,000, if you're, you know, like how many streams do you think you get on Spotify? If, if we get 75,000 streams, that accounts to us needing 1.7 million streams to make that back. Trust me, I've done the maths. Um, <laughs> based on not 0.06 of a cent, not, sorry, not point, 0.06 of a cent per stream on Spotify. And then that accounts to 22 years on like via streams alone for you to make that back. Um, and then people sort of find that staggering. When I mentioned that to, I think it was Jess McAvoy, I, I was telling about this and she said, people don't like to feel guilted about that. And I was like, that's really interesting. Cause I think when I was sort of telling the story as, as sort of saying to try and illuminate the situation to people, I was making them feel bad. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And now when I'm, there's been a couple of shows that I've started watching and they've been making some really good points about like racism or feminism. I don't know if you started watching Mrs. America, <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, which is a great one. And we're looking at feminism. Oh, I don't know, 50, 40, 50 years later. I can't do the math right now in my head. 50 years it's later. 50. It's 1971. Thank you. Yes, it was. So we're looking at this 50 years later and it's actually like, and there are certain things that are still being said about women and how they act and how they how we feel or how we should be made to feel about working or not working and like in the you know all of that stuff and we're still saying these things 50 years on but it's so much easier for us to look back at that and go oh that's that's so wrong like with that sort of because it's sort of told to us with that that sort of distance whereas you know it's with that sort of theatrical distance rather than if it were done now and people were saying these things you know we would be judging that person as right. we would be judging, you know, anyone else in that situation. So I think that that is an interesting point that you raised. Um, and the other one was sort of about, I think it was crowdsourcing and the difference between theater and music um, and how we, you know, that, that sort of, it's asking for a lot of money. And I think there is such a, asking people to come to shows is one thing, asking people to buy a $20 t-shirt is another thing, but asking people right. to fund an entire album of like $20,000 and knowing that if you don't hit that target, you don't get it. Yeah, exactly. Or mm. also then it's the added pressure of, oh, so now I've asked you to give me money. I see exactly how much money every single person has given me. Now I have to create the greatest album of all time. And if I don't, I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. you know? Ben, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the value to your, your, your art and music? Yeah, I spent probably most of my life until the last couple of years, avoiding this entirely. Uh, in fact, it's only been the last couple of years I've actually been my own artist under my own name. I think I spent most of my time hiding behind a band name, hiding behind someone who I was collaborating with, but being kind of the second in charge to avoid some of this stuff. And I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of stuff that Amanda Palmer you know, talks about in the book, like the fraud police that live in your head, uh, just the vulnerability that comes out and insecurity. Um, so I, I spent years avoiding that. And then it was only a, a couple of years ago when I found Amanda Palmer and started my own kind of becoming my own artist under my own name, that this really took on a fire underneath me because the first time I ever actually asked for money, people fell over themselves to actually give me money. Like I asked for $5,000 and I got $7,500. And I was like, absolutely gobsmacked, you know? Uh, and I'd asked before with other people, so I've, you know, I had a collaborator and we raised $20,000 for a Kickstarter. And I raised about five to 7,000 of that myself through my network. But that I think there's something about you asking and you receiving that actually is really, it, it, it changed my life. And I'm so passionate about this, uh, about as an artist standing behind who you are and, and kind of sharing that with the world and allowing people to see you and then getting the, the, the mirror back is such an amazing process. 
mm-hmm. that that trust that you need to have with your fans and I guess it's that that sort of fear of what if I fall and I think in in her talk I think she talks about you know it being like a trustful or like crowd surfing literally crowd surfing right. and she's like I am trusting that they will catch me yep. in the same way that we are trusting that people will support us and if they don't um it all falls a bit flat um so one thing, let's let's start. There's uh, one of the quotes that um, I wanted to talk about, um, and it was regarding being an artist as a job. So I think she starts talking about um, the lessons that she learned. So initially, she was a statue artist uh, somewhere in Boston, like in the square, and you know she would stand there and she would, you know, people would come up to her, put money in a hat, and she would give them a flower. And it's it's really interesting in the way that she she does this, and really it she. She talks about connecting with somebody. She's like, there is a real intimacy in the way that she would look at somebody and someone would look back at her. And she says, you know, I see you. And the person would sort of, there are no words exchanged. And the person looks back at her and says, thank you, I feel seen. And that's the sort of the relationship that she's sort of building. But one thing that she said, you know, when she was briding, because she was dressed as a bride, um, an eight foot bride, um, She says, you know, people would yell at her from their car and say, you know, get a job. Now, how do you guys, like, have you ever sort of been made to feel shame or guilt about the fact that you're an artist? So I have a very uh, similar situation. It's not similar, but for the first few years that I lived in New York, I was in theater school and I didn't have, I was in theater school and I didn't have enough time to have a job as along with the class you know, classes and all that. So I started busking. I brought my violin along, you know, I've I've played forever. So I just kind of like tried that, which was an interesting time because it was not only a couple years after 9-11 and there were a lot of street musicians that were not happening anymore. You know, the the city was still kind of in the the period of mourning. So I made a lot of money. <laughs> I made a lot of money because I probably looked like a child and people, <laughs> you know, it was, it was nonverbal and it was like that feeling of um, someone would walk by, listen to, you know, one classical piece that I pay, played or whatever, and we would have a nonverbal communication. So I understand that. Um, but I think I was so shocked by the amount of money that I made doing that, that I never felt bad about it. And if anybody ever haggled me or heckled me from the sidelines I would always just think like you have no idea how much money I can make doing this and it's just cash and it's so it's such an easy thing you know and I I still have very fond memories of that time of like weird regulars that I had or just like people going watching me and then going and getting me a cup of coffee and like leaving it by my feet it's a very strange thing you know I also had a feud with like a similar bride character who wore point shoes in Central Park, but that's for a story for another time. Um, have, have another mezcal and bring that story up again. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, I could, I could see a lot in her description of like that strange, you know, I think that the basis of the entire book was over her connection with people that she formed during that time. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. I'd agree. <clears throat> Megan? Um, I'm sorry, I lost my, where are we? Oh, we were just talking about like, has, you know, have you been made to feel shame for being, you know, right. a musician, that it's not a real job? Um, I actually, I think I was expecting to, but I haven't, which is, which is, I mean, that's really telling about like my mindset about it. You know, it's like, um, I, I kind of was, um, you know, surprised at, you know, I knew I was going to get support from my family and my friends. And, um, I have, you know, gotten genuine support from everybody, um, who, you know, who I've, uh, expected to, and I'm really grateful for that. But even beyond that, it's like, um, I've never, I've never, I'm lucky enough to never have been made to feel that way. And it's, it's just, I mean, it's amazing. I expected to, to get mm-hmm. that from, you know, in some form or another, but I, I can't remember a time when I have, and I mean, you know, I've, I've only been doing this for a little while, so mm-hmm. maybe it'll come, but you know, maybe it won't. And I mean, that's, that's great that your family support you. Yeah. Like, yeah. cause I, and the only reason I, I interject and I don't mean to interrupt, <clears throat> but, um, 
there's an artist I was speaking to recently who shall remain anonymous because I think this was a very sort of personal thing that they shared, um, said in terms of all of the live shows that they've been doing, and they've been going really well, um, their parents feel embarrassed that they're asking for money. They, they, their parents feel emba- like, like, you know, they're begging for money online from strangers. That's yeah. how their parents are looking at it. So just in terms of that, you know, like get a real job or like how people are, you know, sort of shame you or they don't get it. That's sort of, you know, what some people are having to deal with. And then that, you know, can lay the ground for insecurities in your own work also. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. It mm. is. Yeah. That's, that's the word I was thinking. Just really unfortunate. And I mean, I, yeah, I feel sad for that person. Um, and I feel sad for, for that person's parents, you know, it's like, they should be feeling so much pride for what, you know, their child is doing. Um, but yeah, I've never had to deal with it and I can't, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Mr. Grace. Yeah, that's actually a big part of my story is I think that the first messages I got that, that art was not valuable and not, not the right thing or not a real job was my family. Uh, and still is, they still, I mean, I've been a musician for 20 years and I still can't talk to my parents about music. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, but I, I think there's, there's plenty of like little microaggressions, how kind of people ask kind of that. And I think people are just curious because I think this idea that you lock yourself into uh, the man or the company or the thing and kind of work away. I think that is also, as we're just discovering right now in this period, that's also not as secure as people think it is. Uh, and I think I've just had to shift my head and, and think that there's part of me that I think I really like the idea, uh, this, this, the same Amanda Palmer idea that like day after day on tour, like as you go down the road and you find those strangers and you connect with people and every dollar feels hard fought and hard won at the end of the day, when I lie in bed, the, the feeling I have of doing that work feels really honest and it feels really authentic and it feels really vulnerable. Um, as opposed to, I think, you know, sitting at a desk job where literally you're on Facebook for 60% of the day and you're not really, you're, you're sort of, you're tagged out a lot of people. Uh, and that's some people are saying everyone, but a lot of people who, who sort of tagged out of that job. Whereas I feel like I'm, every dollar I, you know, that I, that I make when I'm there at a show staring people at the eyeballs and telling stories and trying to deliver a song with the, the, the passion that I wrote it in the first place, uh, just feels like I'm, I'm alive in a huge way. And I hope that it makes other people feel alive as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, and, you know, like knowing that every dollar that you make is a dollar that you make doing your passion yep. rather mm-hmm. than, you know, and it's a really good point that you make, you know, right now, what job is secure? So not ours. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but yes, <laughs> I agree. Quite. <laughs> I more mean, honestly, I, I had that thought like at the beginning of this, when it all sort of started to shut down, I was just like, wow, I've never considered, I don't think that I've ever had the thought of like, this isn't a valid career or get a real job because I just never gave myself that thought because I really believe that to be successful, you have to remove every single strain of doubt that you ever have. And so if that's coming from an outside source or yourself, you just, there's no room for it in what we do, you know, but at the beginning of all the shutdowns, it was just like, oh, I've never thought about the fact that everything that I do is reliant on a crowd of people and that connection that is so talked about in her book. We're rapidly finding new ways to make those connections, you know, such as this forum of book club for viewers that we've built through our music and through our outreach, you know. What we do as artists is so dependent on those human interactions. Um, So that kind of, I think, is the heart of it. It's the heart of what we do. We lost you there for a second, Erica, I think. Thank God. I thought it was yeah. just me. Yeah. No, yeah, we did. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Erica. I think we lost you. I think you were just talking about um, that sort of human connection and how it's so powerful and how we're trying to recreate that within the tools that we currently have. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's another aspect to the experience the moment we're experiencing right now and someone posted this i can't remember the exact words but something to the the extent of what we're seeing is people's uh belief in certainty crumbling right now 
And so anxiety is, is one of those things where we kind of believe that there's certain things will just go on. I'll go to work tomorrow. It'll be there. And that myth of certainty is huge for all of us. And I think there's something about the, the artist experience where what we fundamentally do is, is come up against that and say, I'm going to throw myself into that uncertainty. I'm going to throw myself against that. And I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb that just goes up against that like thing every single day. I think people kind of it drives people a little bit crazy. And I guess what it does is it makes them think like, why couldn't I do that? You know, why couldn't I just take the plunge and, and just go all in with this thing that I really love and think, and it, it, it's about the fear that they're, they're harboring. And so I've, I've learned in the last couple of years in my life that most of what people are going to say to you is a projection of their fears and it's a projection of their insecurities. Exactly. And it's a fear of them. What did I write here? I'm just, I, I think, you know, Amanda Palmer writes that it's a person's fear of getting onto that box themselves. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think it's interesting, like she, she talks um, about Brené Brown and about this sort of fear of vulnerability. Erica, you're back. Yay. Um, thought we'd lost you. Oh. Although you don't. <laughs> she's, nope, she's there. She's, she's looking very blankly at oh, me. <laughs> she's actually just being a bride. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're just being the statue. You're illustrating my point so well. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's about, Ben, it's, it's a great point. I think if we're able to recognize that people's sort of hate is actually their own fear that they couldn't do it themselves. Yeah. Like it's such a scary prospect to jump in, not knowing how it's going to go. And I think there's that sort of, and I think sometimes that's why artists are, it's, it's interesting because when we're not doing well, we, you know, we're sort of ridiculed or shamed, but when we do well, it's like we are on a pedestal, but yeah. you know, there, there is that journey to get there and yeah. we all have to go through that. Renee Brown also has an amazing quote that I think is on one of her newer books uh, or, or talks where she says, uh, talks about the people who will just fling mud from the sidelines or throw the, the, the rotten fruit and says, you're either in the, the center of the ring or you're a spectator and you just can't worry about the spectators because they're not in there. They're just, they're just not doing that thing. And, and you have to have a certain amount of belief or just dogged kind of self-determination to get into the ring and just to ignore the haters and to ignore that stuff because they're not there. You're the person driving by in their car saying, get a real job. You know, who knows what their real job is, but I'm sure that they don't like that job. That's what I'm sure of. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, she's crediting, I think, um, I think it's Teddy Roosevelt. It's a guess, but yes, and you're right. And, and I think it's that, it's, it's a quote that um, I think before Brené Brown used it was not that, yeah. it wasn't so well known. I think she's made it so like, you know, in the public sphere. Um, let's go back a bit more generally. How did you feel about the book? Because I think we all have some strong feelings about the book. Uh, I thought the book was really forced. I thought it was like, I loved the TED Talks. I thought that that was very concise and kind of to the point, you know. Mm. I thought the book was a lot of stories about being a statue bride. And I was, you know, I wanted <laughs> yeah. to be on board for those struggles, but I was just like, I'm having a real hard time connecting to this as a musician because I feel I felt like it, it could have just been edited down so much more mm -hmm. um you know we talked about the structure like the the no chapter system the lack of chapters oh my god, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly I was just like this feels like I'm getting a ton of whiplash and she just came back to try to write the book like a million different times all those she like goes forward and comes back and, and, yeah needed yeah. an editor <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny because she's married to Neil. I'm like, wait a minute. This doesn't, something doesn't add up here. <laughs> That's terrible. I, yeah. I mean, I, I also will say that I found her um, incredibly hard to relate to, mm. um, which is not, you know, common whenever I'm reading anything about a musician or an artist especially one who like has a background in theater I just felt like there's just I don't know what it is there's just something about her that I don't I I can't really connect to yeah I kind of I kind of got that too like and full disclosure I didn't not get through the entire book but um what I did what I did get to read um I I, I'm with you, Erica, on that like disconnect thing. And I, 
I don't, I don't really know what to attribute it to either. Um, but it was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was like all of the storytelling and just the fact that I, you know, I've never done anything like that. Um, I've never really done anything like what she's doing besides music, obviously. Um, but yeah, it did, it did seem a little bit like she was pretty far removed, but, um, I enjoyed it. I liked the stories. It, yeah, it was pretty repetitive, but, um, yeah, I, I think what, um, my big takeaway was the whole connection theme. I really, I really enjoyed that just because like, that's, that's the most important thing, you know? And I, I like that that was the theme and like, that was the big picture for her. So. Hmm. Yeah, full disclosure, I read this book uh, several years ago. Um, like I said, when I first discovered Amanda Palmer, I was like, oh, she's the prophet. She has all the answers. And I, I, I listened to every single uh, podcast I could find. I, 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 I was at a friend's place and uh, they had the book kind of right there. And so I just sort of browsed my way through it. And I'd already heard a lot of the stories from the podcast at that point. Uh, and uh, I think most books, honestly, sometimes have one good idea and they usually can tell you that in 45 pages and the rest of it, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I always but, say like, if you could read the first sentence of every paragraph and not miss much, then it's just, yep. It's too long. It's yeah. way too long. Yeah. Here's a question. So I was having an offline conversation with someone about this who didn't want to be on the podcast because they had some very strong feelings about Amanda Palmer. Um, <laughs> couldn't connect. Eyebrows. Couldn't connect. I don't want to go into the eyebrows because I kind of feel yeah. like I don't want to judge her on her eyebrows, but I definitely <laughs> want to talk about it offline. Um, <laughs> uh, but so this person said to me, I feel that, she, you know, like they, they were sort of almost quite angry about it. And they were, you know, mm. this is someone that I don't know super well. So we were having this sort of very, um, not guarded, but a very sort of careful conversation with each other. So as not to kind of offend each other or sort of have too much of an argument about it, but it was actually quite a spirited debate and I really enjoyed it. But this person said, um, I feel that she's sort of very white and privileged and that that is the space that she comes from. Um, and much as, you know, she was effectively sort of homeless for a while, like, statuing and then like joined effect like effectively went to live in a commune um felt that the, that sort of experience was very typical of someone who's sort of very white and privileged and i think in terms of you know the way that she was or sorry the way that amanda palmer talks about um not having shame for asking this person made an interesting point and said sometimes and I'm not sure I, dis I, I agree with this entirely, but made the point that if we haven't experienced shame, then we don't know necessarily the value of asking. Hmm. And my argument to that is not about shame necessarily, but it's about vulnerability. And I, I feel like I don't know that we need to, to you know, experience shame to, to be able to experience empathy. That's sort of my feeling on it. But I don't know how you guys feel about the sort of definitely the privileged aspect of it and you know, needing to feel vulnerable or sort of shame or whatever in, in order to ask for something. I definitely think that that is probably what it was about it that made me kind of just cr cringy um, because you're, <laughs> if you want to talk about like how hard you had it and you were able to get a job in college immediately at a coffee shop that you could pay your rent. And then you had the privilege of going to a liberal arts college where you had the background to learn how to do any kind of miming. I mean, only because I came from a very similar experience. I, I feel like there's something about the book that made it sound like she had like written the rules for being self-sufficient and like how to make it from as an artist from the ground up. But like, that is so against what I identify with because I'm very aware that a lot of my career has to do with the fact that I had a big jump start because of where I came from in the world. And like, I'll never forget that. It also makes me know that I am very replaceable and I'm not special and not in a way that I'm, you know, going to cry about it into my pillow at night, just that I'm very thankful for things. And I know the way that the world works. So there was something about the, when she was talking about like, this is all it takes. She's forgetting about a lot of other things that are going on in the world for other people who are not, you know, yeah, middle-class white girls. And that's just kind of like, yeah. A bit like, is it 
one of the Kardashians. Is it Chloe, the one who's like a self-made millionaire? And you're like, mm. all right, though. <laughs> Shade button. Yeah. And even in the book, like she talks about how she didn't even realize that she was connecting to all these other people that weren't artists. Yeah, it's because they're like middle class people who hate their jobs and are being are seeing something of themselves in this artist person and like romanticizing what that means. I I mean that's the worst of it. I think there's a lot of good to take from the book as well, but that's kind of what made me like every few pages or so just kind of. Eh. Yeah. It's funny for yeah. me because I kind of feel like I, I had a very different experience. I grew up pretty poor, uh, and I grew up in Australia. But I grew up in a, in a place where at least socialized Medicaid, med, um, medical care and education were a thing. So I was able to get a bachelor's degree, even though I grew up quite poor. Um, and I had the opposite thing experience and have wrestled with this feeling of every time I ask for money, feeling like a charity case because of that. Um, and so I've had to kind of really do that, the opposite work of actually realizing that everyone is valuable, like every human, even in, in places of privilege, everyone still is, has value. And, and, I, and so I think I, there's something about Amanda Palmer that I think cut through some of the bullshit for me. Um, and I think there's other two theories for me. I don't know if you, know, if you guys know Enneagram, but all I just love Enneagram right now. I'm right into it. And I think she's either an eight with this real bullheaded personality, which is just like, this is the truth and this is my experience. Or she's a three, which is just about kind of this, you know, David Bowie-esque kind of character where you just, you're playing characters and you're trying to look for, uh, come and find me, you know, you know, playing behind your insecurity, but then you're going to dress up in, in costumes and kind of take that character out to the world. Uh, but what you really want ultimately is connection, people to see you. I think she talks a lot about that, that fraud police idea. You know, it sounds very much like a three to me because that's kind of how I identify. Um, and so I think there's something about uh, that moment where no matter where you are, you need to ask. Like even if you come from a privileged kind of background, if you're sitting in a boardroom opposite Amazon fashion, that just comes to mind because I just finished watching Making the Cut. Like there's still a moment where you need to ask that fucking question and believe because if you don't believe, like... Like when Amanda starts to get into the questions, which I think you've probably got, Stephanie. So is it how you ask, if you ask out of kind of fear or if you ask out of insecurity, it comes off differently. Yeah. And I think there's still a moment where you kind yeah. of really, when you inhabit that and kind of live in that. Uh, and that's definitely, I realized for me, I was often asking out of it just like, oh, I don't have to, don't give to me. Like if it's just, you know, and, and people don't, it's not sexy. People don't respond to that. Uh, so I think yeah. that's been my experience. And I think I, I hear the arguments about privilege with, with Amanda, but I think that also she's a circus freak on some kind of level, you know? <laughs> so, so that, that kind of experience of her not being in the, in the mainstream, I think probably kind of did kind of color her experience. Mm -hmm. And just um, to help to uh, fill out what you were saying there in terms of, you know, asking for help, she said there's three different ways of asking for help. And one is asking for help with shame which is effectively saying you have power over me. There's asking for help with condescension, which is saying I have power over you. And then there's helping, sorry, there's asking for help with gratitude, which is we have the power to help one another, which really goes to another point that she makes, which is asking is at its core a collaboration. Yeah. Um, sorry, Megan, I, I interjected. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, no, no. Um, I like where you where you're going about the collaboration thing. Yeah, it's like you you have to be willing to have that relationship with that person that you're asking because that's what it is, you know. And that's that's the cool thing about it. Um, you might be afraid to ask, but a lot of people are so willing and so gracious about it. And it's like, yeah, if you can just like make that relationship with people. Mm -hmm. um, that's the very, that's at the very core. So, so there's a lot of artists that are that like, you know, they play a show and they are spent, like their energy is, is all put into being on stage and giving everything to that performance yep. that they don't have any energy left or, you know, very much energy left to kind of go out and do the signing line. It's such, it's, it's a real kind of draw on their energy to go out and do that signing line. Mm -hmm. There are some other artists who love that. Like literally they live for, for that kind of bit after the show. They almost like that more than the show itself. Yep. Um, but, in, but, you know, Amanda Palmer talks about building that community really through the signing line. She was like, we would close the place down. I would make sure that I spoke to everyone. I would make sure that I gave everyone a hug and, and, and that kind of thing. And 
I find that really interesting. And she's, you know, talks about, you know, the art of asking, we created our community and that's how it works. Um, I wonder if it's possible, you know, if, because some artists are more naturally introvert, introverted than others. So, you know, that sort of signing line and community building can be a real struggle. I mean, I think it comes down to um, know your brand, for lack of a better word, know your product, know your brand. So if you're somebody who does really well at that, then that's how you're definitely going to grow your fan base. And that for her was more important almost than, than the music, it seemed to me. It's like she didn't spend a lot of time talking about her music and how she wrote it and everything. She spent so much time talking about how important those lines were her, for her, the signings and all that. So that for her was her main, you know, ticket to success where I think a lot of other people, not going to mention any names have like made that a very acquired taste <laughs> and you have to pay things. And that is also a ticket to success. And then, you know, there's the third type, which is the introvert. So you only have access to that person on stage. And I think that is also something that can work. So I think it's just all about um, knowing how you best connect to people. And I think for some artists, they best connect to people through their music on stage and not in person, you know? That was obviously the opposite for her. And she just honed in on that from day one. And I think that that's why she was successful. I mean, and I totally hear you. And I think there's absolute validity to all of that. Where I struggle, I think, is when there are artists that I'm able to connect with much more deeply through, you know, meeting them afterwards or, in, I don't know, chatting with them on Instagram or whatever. Like, we're, we're now able to have this access to artists. Um, and, the, and I'll, you know, as an example, I went to see Rayla Montaigne two years ago at Radio City. And it was a, an incredible gig. Like he was, he was, you know, fully acoustic. Um, I think he may have had a bass player for some songs, you know, doing some backups as well. But for the most part, it was just completely acoustic and it was beautiful. But in an hour and a half, he spoke twice. Yeah. I was so fucking bored like and it just killed it I'm like because for me I'm like I'm going to see this guy I'm gonna like and it's great because like you go to shows and I personally go to shows so that I can hear all the stories behind my favorite songs or you know get to know that artist a little bit you know like feel that kind of I'm getting something more than just sitting at home and listening to the record yep. and I was just so disappointed by that experience but I take Never your point that if heroes yeah <laughs> well I didn't I think Ray is famously introverted, though. I know. But, you know like I, he I only releases music, I think, now just to, you know, pay some bills. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And I, it's funny. I think, Erica, you kind of talked about your, your brand. And I think one thing I, that clicked for me a few years ago is the brand is who you are, you know, because you can't sell something that you're not really, you know. Uh, I think that that even comes down to corporations. I mean, when you have like KFC a few years ago deleted all their Twitter followers, uh, all the people I was following on Twitter and I only followed 11 guys called Herb and all the Spice Girls. That's really <laughs> funny. Like it's just, it's just knowing what you're, what, what, what you're saying is really great. And I think for me realizing that a few years ago, who I was, I was a connector, I was an extrovert and, and I'd kind of, I'd kind of hidden behind bands and hidden behind collaborations instead of actually just being the front guy, because I get to tell the stories and I get to be stupid and say the wrong thing. And it's just kind of funny. It's just kind of who I am. Um, she has a bit in the book about the difference between being looked at and wanting to be seen, which I think is delicious. Mm -hmm. And she says, when you are looked at, your eyes can be closed. You suck energy, you steal the spotlight. When you are seen, your eyes must be open and you are seeing and recognizing your witness. You accept energy and you generate energy. You create light. One is exhibitionism and the other is connection. Not everyone wants to be looked at, but everybody wants to be seen. And I think that to me is, is the crux of what I liked about her message because I think most of my life I didn't want to be seen, you know, and I was, I was clamoring into kind of my gifts, you know, music and, and, and kind of all the stuff, all the things I knew uh, and kind of looking for affirmation, but I just didn't realize that underneath all that, if I got out of my insecurity and kind of said, what I really want to do is be known and I want to be like truly seen for myself as well. And that only happens really when you just, for me, yeah. the most transcendent moments of that are on stage 
when you kind of you speak the truth of something you you've kind of you've you've written and you watch people in the moment go with you into that emotional space that's there's nothing more gratifying there's nothing kind of mm. there's no other reason why i do this no. and just to illustrate your point and one thing one other thing that she says is when you are afraid of someone's judgment you can't connect with them you're too preoccupied oh, yeah. with the task of impressing them and that oh, hit yeah. me like something in the face I mean, you and I have talked about this before. It's like every time you get on stage and you have that awful feeling that all of us have had before of like, I don't know why, but like, I'm really nervous and this isn't going well. And you know, it's not going well. That's what that feels like, you know, and because you put this wall up of your own anxiety or whatever it is. And so you want, you don't, you can't have that connection with the audience in the same way, you know? Mm you just know when it's happening and then you just kind of like can't get out of it whatever that is no I know that's one of the reasons I love playing with you is because I think like I'm able to just kind of share that with you and I think when I played with my band before I also felt I was trying to impress them so I couldn't I was just like all in my own little space and I think with you I was like oh great we're in this together if we fuck up, it's, we're in this together. We're both. Yeah, it's I, I feel that so often. And so I would see you doing that to yourself and just be like, oh, straight up on the mic. Like, it's fine. You're not fucking this up. Humor is a great thing. I, for me, it's, it's when I know I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole of that thing. If I stop and talk to the audience and tell a story, it breaks the ice. Even if I, at first, my, my voice stammers, even if I'm nervous, once I find that groove of story and I get back to that's the truth, the reason why I'm on stage is to tell a story yeah. and to hear stories back. Like I have one song called Complicated. It's about a very complicated dating relationship in New York City, not mine, but someone else's. Uh, and I've gone around the country where I play it and I ask people their dating stories. And when you get those like, stories back, like So Far Sounds Denver, I remember the first night I played that and I asked this, this question, and this guy stuck up his hand and told the story about how he'd run over some kittens on his first date. And, and it, the whole room was like, like accidentally, of course, he wasn't deliberately doing it. He's not a psychopath. But the whole room was aghast, the same reactions you have. But it united the audience a little bit on that kind of stuff. And I was able to use oh that God, joke right. throughout the night and be just like, well, not like the psychopath at the back who's killed kittens. <laughs> like, but, you know, it was all in good fun. But I think that kind of stuff unites the room, you know, when you can find that kind of story. Um, mm. so mm-hmm. you can find that kind of thing. Humor is a great, it's, it's not a crutch. It's a great tool, I think, for reaching people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. I, just to take it back to this idea of the signing, maybe that's also why I couldn't, is because that seemed so obvious to me, having come from a theater background, like the first time, making a Broadway debut and getting into that, like, signing line afterwards and meeting all those fans was like a fucking light bulb for me that was something I'd been waiting for for my entire life because when you're in theater there's a divide way more strongly than whenever you're a musician on stage it's like the character and then it's you as the human being and musicians like not there's not always that strong divide so when you get to speak to people in person they expect you to kind of be a a cohesive being whether or not that's true you know because a lot of artists choose to play a character and then step off stage and be somebody else um but you know having come from a theatrical background like I never skipped that I never skipped that line because it was just like it was the best thing in the whole world Mm -hmm. but you know that just I don't know that that would that had always been a built-in kind of thing to my experience and something I think is really important and valuable so her coming from a theater background I'm kind of like this isn't like a you you're just actually like kind of playing on the beast which is you know how strongly people connect with you if they just get a chance to talk to you and feel seen and be heard fans out of them and she absolutely used that to her full advantage which I don't know I I I just thought like "Mm, that's not a a new idea but I do appreciate you know this there is a there is there's difficulty I think in that process and I was just listening to uh, Ari Herstan's the new music business podcast and he had Jack Conti on who's the founder of Patreon whose whole platform is about asking your fans to to come along with you monthly like different to kickstart, like really to commit to you. Um, and one of the things Jack Conti said uh, that really blew me away was talking about how they've created this uh, community 
uh, program inside, or I don't think they created it, but they just opted it into Patreon called Discord. And he said their fans, so his, his band, uh, Pomplamoose, with him and his, his, his uh, partner uh, is amazing. And they've got Scary Pockets as well. But on the Pomplamoose fan um, Discord, all their fans talk sideways to each other. So the relationship is not fan, it's not artist centric, but it's mm. about uh-huh. how you, it's about how you create this culture and these people who find this commonality then can connect to each other. And I think there is that vulnerability with uh, Amanda's thing is like, it's kind of about you on some kind of level. Um, and to be able to kind of, how can you remove yourself a little bit from that circumstance? And I know that I have in my own insecurity, I think created this like, Fans have immediate access to me. So like they, they text me and they message me. And some days I'm just yeah. like, <gasps> I, <you> know, <laughs> and I but love, that's still I love your right and privilege to not answer whenever. You know. That's true. But I think because I still haven't, I'm still in therapy and still kind of doing the work. Like some days I'm just like, it feels heavy. And I, and I just, I, I wish that some days I could, I could say to people like, it's not about me. And, and if you look sideways, I know this fan that like right over here, who's dealing with the same life experience you are. And you guys can talk about that and connect to that. And I'm not, I don't have all the answers to all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why fan pages exist, right? It's so all of those people can join together and talk to each other. So it's a community as opposed to like a one-on-one relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally get your point, Erica. And like, I wouldn't necessarily say that what she's done is groundbreaking, but you could argue that it kind of is because she has really capitalized on it in a way that, no one really has before. I mean, let's not forget she raised 1.2 million, the most money on Kickstarter history, um, from 25,000 fans. And you know, when she, you know, we were talking about this, in, and she talks about this in her um, TED talk, when she released an album on a label, 25,000 copies were sold, and the label said yeah. that wasn't enough. Yeah. And yet, the 20 and 25,000 people opted in for this Kickstarter and raised 1.2 million for an album that could have cost, I don't know, 30,000. Something like that. It's because she knew her fan base better than any label ever could. Right. So she knew they would be the ones like burning CDs for each other, but still Mm -hmm. showing up to every show. You know, I mean, that's that's a perfect example of like, as well as knowing your brand, you have to know your audience and you have to know what they're going to do for you. Mm -hmm. Megan, you look like you have something to say there. No, no, I just, um, that's, that's one of the things that I took too from, from the book about knowing your audience. And like, um, you know, she said, she said, you can't be, you can't be choosy about your audience, but like, once you do know them, you're going to know like how, how they want to repay you for your art. It's how she put it. Um, you know, like in cash or in kindness or, um, in help or, you know, like I kind of liken it to, you know, some people will, um, some people will, will support you monetarily. And some people um, can't do that, but they will share everything that you ever post and they'll come to every live stream and like, they'll do everything else in their power. So it's like knowing your audience and knowing like being comfortable asking also has to do with knowing like what, what they're willing to give. So, right. Mm-hmm. All right, now guys, I think we're, we're coming up on uh, time, whatever that means. Um, so I'm going to ask you two questions and I can go first if it helps. So my, my two questions to you are this, what, it, what was a, either a quote or what is something that you're going to take away from this book, given the fact that none of us have fucking finished the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> apart from Ben. Um, yeah, I got to like, where were they? 130. I speed read the whole I got thing. To. Let's just say that much. Oh, good for you. I didn't. Like fucking chapters. Jesus Christ. Um, again, why I don't drink when I host. Uh, two questions. So what are you going to take away, quote or general theme? And second and last question, what are you looking forward to when lockdown is over? So I can go first if that helps. So the, the quote that, or the thing that I'm taking away from this, obviously general theme of connection and community, which is something that I really believe in and that, which is why I do this podcast. Um, but, the, and I think a quote one of the, I think the quote that I said that I mentioned it earlier was like, when you're afraid of someone's judgment, you can't connect with them. So I, that was probably my favorite, but I already mentioned that. So when she finishes her TED talk, she says, you know, the, the music industry, you know, people were saying you've turned it on its head and everyone was asking the question, how do we make people pay for music if you're giving it away for free? And her response was, how do we let them? 
And I thought that was very, a really sort of interesting point. What do you guys think? Um, I think that there's a lot to take away from it, but I think mainly for me, um, if you know your strengths and you know your audience, then you can't not fail. I think that that she's a perfect example of that. Take, take, take such a little niche type of music, you know? They wore like my makeup, it's, it's so strange. And she was successful because she knew her audience and she knew what she had to give to them and never questioned that on top of it. She never once questioned what she was doing, whether it be standing on a milk crate as a bride, you know, or stripping down naked and letting strangers sign her body, you know. So that's a lesson for me because as a person who constantly questions everything that they do or put out, you know, something to meditate on. Um, and I am mostly just looking forward to standing in a room with thousands of people again, <laughs> playing Good some <laughs> music, because I really miss that. And had I known it was going to be my last show in on March 6th, I think I would have taken it in a lot more than I did. <laughs> yeah, mine was March 7th. <laughs> Crazy. Um, so I think, yeah, I agree that there, there is a lot to take away, but, um, what I kept coming back to for, for me, and this wasn't directly from the book or maybe it was, and I just didn't quite get there. Um, but for me, I kept coming back to, um, something that I'm still working on myself, but like knowing my why, like why I do this, why I have chosen music as a career and, um, and like, you know, if you're going to ask me, if you're going to like um, be in front of people and make those connections and, um, you know, really just live this, you have to know your why. So it's, um, that was something that, that I um, am, am working on and um, kind of just uh, hit home for me reading this. So, but um, something that she said that I really liked is um, there is a certain sense of indiscriminate gratitude that is essential to hone if you're going to survive in the arts. And I love that. I love that. Just the whole gratitude thing. And um, yeah, just being, just being so appreciative of the people um, who are giving and not even paying attention to anybody else who just yells at you or walks by or ignores you, whatever. Um, so yeah. And then for me, oh gosh. Um, uh, I guess I'm looking forward to just, just being able to travel again and tour. That's like, we were going to be gone for like the entire month of May. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> so that's what I'm looking forward to. I've been muting because my housemate is, is learning songs for Heathen Happy Hour in the background. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's currently learning, you make me feel like a natural woman, which I hope he doesn't drag because that'd be amazing. <laughs> Um, I would tune in and pay good money for that one. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing. He's, he's it's uh, quite high, also. That one. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. He's doing the original key back there. I don't know how. Uh, I mean, not a, even Carol King can do it in the original key anymore. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Matthew's Matthew's um, drag character is called Flamey Grant, which is a little riff on Amy Grant. You know, who's kind of a, a Christian, you know, contemporary music mm. singer. Uh, so you know, he's a, he was a big fan back in the day, you know, being a, a closeted gay man in, in the church world. And so he's reclaiming that by doing just beautiful Amy Grant covers in full drag. So, um, okay. What did I take away oh, from- Oh, I can hear that. There you yeah. go, right? <laughs> just have a moment of silence. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's so many takeaways from the book. And I think every time I kind of revisit this, which is why I was keen to be on this discussion, something else hits me in some aspect. I think when I first heard uh, Amanda Palmer talk, the question that was bothering me was, why not me? You know, like, why not ask for what I want? And, and, and why not just put that into the universe and see what comes back? And, and if, if someone like Amanda Palmer can kind of make it and find that niche community, why can't I, you know? So that, that was my first kind of thing that kind of took away. And I think that led me to creating a Patreon. I created a Patreon two years ago. Um, and I've loved every second of that journey. I, I just love um, having these people in my life and kind of watching uh, 
the way they connect with my music and the kind of what, how they value it. And I'm actually thinking about taking that to the next level because that same conversation I referenced earlier with Jack Conti on, on the podcast, he talked about there's a certain type of artist that is a community builder. It's not every artist, but some people are community builders. And I've done that my entire life. I grew up in a cult and, and kind of I knew five songwriters and I built uh, a community of songwriters within that, uh, within that community of about 150 people. Uh, I went to New York and started a songwriting community in my apartment and did that for five years. Uh, and we went from a bunch of, you know, wannabes to, I think we did maybe five or six Kickstarters and a whole bunch of records came out of that. Um, and some of those guys are still making, you know, music today and, and actually being, you know, doing it, uh, which is incredible. And then, uh, and I started a, a church community in, in Brooklyn as well. Uh, that's kind of grown and been amazing. So I've, wherever I've gone, I've done that. And I think for me, that's, what I think it is, is like just knowing who you are and kind of going after that again um, and, and yeah, kind of being yeah. curious about yourself, I think is, is huge. It does change. Uh, but I really, I love the imagery of, of how she's like offering a flower because it's the simplicity of it, you know? And, and I think uh, there's this amazing song by an Aussie artist. Um, I can't remember what the song's called because it's one of those obscure lines that's kind of in, the, in, the, in one of the verses. But essentially the chorus is uh, about this, artist who's kind of having a bad day and feeling like, why should I do this thing? Like, and the, and the, the lyric is songs are made of air. They can't be any use to her better off trying to catch falling airplanes. And so he's having this bad day. And then she comes back and she's like, you know, well, you know, songs aren't like that. Like they, they mean something They kind of actually kind of huge for me. Uh, and this idea that you can out of nothing create a living and create a life is, is astonishing because we're all of us are walking into a future that we have no idea what is actually ahead of us. And so artists by, by ourselves create and can dream up these incredible things that I think kind of give yeah. people hope for, for a better day ahead. Uh, so why not us? And, and why don't we build that community? Why can't we ask for money? Uh, so I think kind of that's the fire that's underneath me right now is how can I take this Patreon community into the next level? How can I get them to connect to each other? Because, you know, I have people from Australia to the UK to the US, you know, who I think they could all benefit from each other's like life experience. Um, and I think similar to you guys, what am I looking for after this? I just, I just, I want to get back on the road again. I mean, we've been live streaming and we have people from five different continents connecting uh. to our stuff on a Thursday. And I just can't wait to just go and hug some of their bodies and to, cry with them a little bit about how hard this is all what paint. i wouldn't give to be stuffed on a bus right now right. <laughs> I mean, all the things oh. we bitched about we're just like i don't know give, it back. God. Yeah. give yeah. me overnight travel sleeping in a tiny little coffin i will do it tomorrow <laughs> yeah yeah let me wake up at 4 30 on a sunday morning in a stranger's like couch with a cat on top of me I, I'll, I'll take it <laughs> Oh my God. That's the dream, guys. That's the dream. That's the dream. Well, well one one more thing. Sorry to add one more thing about like the time that we're living in as artists. I think this was a great time to read that book mm -hmm. because yeah. my perspective on the art of asking has completely changed in the last month, and I That's have right. no problem asking for help now in a way that I never thought I would be at. You know, and I think. For anyone who's looking to read the book, it's worth a read right now as an artist, just because yep. it will make you reflect on a lot of things in your own life before this shutdown and after the shutdown, um, whatever that may be. So I think it was a it was a gift right now, whether or not I could read the whole paragraph. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> There's one of my favorite quotes from the book is that the um, from what I've seen, it isn't much isn't so much the art of asking that paralyzes us, it's what lies beneath the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of rejection, the fear of looking needy or weak, the fear of being seen as a burdensome member of the community instead of a productive one, that points fundamentally to our separation from one another. And I think we have, we're so aware of the separation because of this circumstance that all of a sudden the psychology of it is really rising to the surface. And I think for any artist who's out there, you run your first Kickstarter and I'll tell you, your demons will come out to play so hardcore. I, I've said to so many friends where I've, I've seen them launch a, a Kickstarter online and I'm in their inbox immediately like, yo, here's my cell number, call me. And people don't take it seriously. And then the thing starts to tank and I'm just like, call me again. And, the, and you know, it's like, just, I can, I can walk you through that. I know the psychology mm. of what it feels like to plateau at like the, you know, at the one third mark all the way through. I know what it feels like to kind of, to think I actually have to like, 
call my great uncle Jerry and ask him for like, you know, that $1,500. Like, I know what that is, but I know if, if you can get on the other side of that, what lies is, is so beautiful and so meaningful to you. So I, yeah. I, I'm grateful to be part of this conversation. I'm passionate about it. I'm also interested to see what happens after lockdown. And I know that I was wrapping up, but I do have one final thought on it. And I think this is something I spoke with Jess McAvoy about. I feel like right now, you know, maybe, maybe before people didn't feel like art was necessarily valued. And as soon as this happened, it's like everyone has turned to the artists for this entertainment. And it's really differentiated artists from celebrity because celebrities who are sort of in their home and, you know, like, they're fine. They're totally fine. They're just a little bit bored, but they have no struggles whatsoever. But with the, you know, with artists who are giving so much of themselves when they don't know if they'll be able to make rent, you know, and we're doing this willingly and givingly to other givingly. That's a rubbish term. I'll cut that out in the actual, in the audio, it'll come out. Um, but they're doing this sort of willingly and giving. And I'm very much hoping that we will renew this relationship that we have um, with our art and the, the fans and I, I hope that this sort of community feeling that we have will continue on that note um I am so very grateful for this conversation um I have loved this book club um I've never been able to do it before and uh I really enjoyed I mean I like we're, we're musicians we love talking about music and we love talking about music with other musicians and people in general so um this has been such a gift to me and I want to thank each of you so very much for joining me this evening um, we're, we're, we're friends, so we're staying in touch anyway. But um, I will put all of your details uh, in the post eventually. But Megan Lee, thank you so much. Ben Grace, all the way from San Diego. And uh, Erica Swindell from, you know, like two miles away in Brooklyn. Um, I love you all. Thank you so much. And we'll speak to you guys soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bye. Steph. This is awesome. I really loved that episode, but I won't be drinking live on a podcast again. Maybe. Uh, next week on the live show, Cocktails with Aki Burmese. See, it didn't last long, did it? Aki Burmese from Lake Street Dive will be live on Facebook sharing stories and songs to lighten the mood as hopefully, hopefully, lockdown draws to a close. So join us at 8pm Eastern Wednesday evening on our Facebook page, New York Artists Collective. On the audio version, however, next week we'll be releasing the live session that I'm doing technically tonight. Uh, with licensed therapist Eve Blatt to talk about mental health and coping strategies to get you through this crisis. Make sure you subscribe to the show and it will just show up straight to your phone. I'm Stephanie Manns. Stay safe out there and I'll see you next time. New York Artists Collective.